Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. This week, I'm joined by the wonderful singer-songwriter and now-published author, Catherine Williams. Not only is she a massive Paul Weller fan, but Mr. Weller has also called out a love of her music on many occasions as well. Now, prepare yourself for this one, because there are so many brilliant stories about Catherine's life, links with Mr. Weller, and a proper, proper exclusive that will also have you creased up with laughter, I'm sure. Let's get into it. Catherine Williams, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I love this little window into your life because I'm I'm zooming in here on your home studio by the looks of things. Yeah, this is my little, I don't know if you can see, uh, if I lift, tip it up a bit. Yeah. And I, I mean, we call it the elf hut and it's like my little sort of shed next to the house where I do co-writing and work up my demos for records and things. Nice. So you wouldn't record an actual album here. This is this is like your work in progress space, is it, to, to then take it somewhere else? It's not soundproofed. I mean, quite Quite a lot of things end up on albums from here when they've been cleaned up and all the bird songs been taken off. But, um, I worked with um, the producer Head on my early albums and he said to me, then, the best advice for someone who writes a lot is to not get a proper, proper studio, just get somewhere where you can get ideas down so you don't get sucked into the sort of tech of it all. And another engineer who I used to work with called Dave Morn told me that you can't polish a turd. <laughs> so <laughs> basically what it means is that like you get all these ideas out and if they sound good in, in a raw and sort of sketchy state, then the good ones will rise to the top instead Instead of you trying to sort of make better the ones that aren't as good. Love it. Love it. Oh, <laughs> I'm so looking forward to talking to you, I have to say. So thank you for joining me on the podcast here. To kick it off, obviously, there's so many of your bits and pieces that I'm going to talk through, which link into <laughs> Mr. Weller. This piece, which, which link into Mr. Weller. 
Um, so we have to start off as it is the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Um, when did you first become aware of, of the music of Paul? I was born in the uh, 18th century, so um, <laughs> I'm an early Paul Weller fan. Uh, well, you know, I grew up with the jam and even at school, discos, dancing to, to the jam and always feeling that it was sort of dangerous and edgy. And then there was the Star Council. And then when he started doing his solo stuff, it really fed into the music that I was into, like the sort of American singer-songwriter, you know, like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, even Paul Simon, that sort of weaving of, of like acoustic instruments. So I've sort of, he's always been on my radar. A lot of people I know have worked with him and a photographer that I work with has always taken photos of him, Tom Sheehan, and always said he was a nice bloke. And so it's, yeah, we sort of crossed paths like a bit over the years but yeah so recently a bit more of that yeah we'll get into that in a sec that'd be lovely but you grew up with a love of music and those artists that you talked about but when was it you realized that actually you could do this thing because there's a difference between just playing songs and being able to write songs um you worked out quite early on that you were pretty good at both the short answer is no uh <laughs> and i was sort of ill as a child i got like this glandular fever and i started sort of writing as a way to sort of writing and drawing as a way to sort of get through the sort of bed days because I was like bedridden for a quite a long time. And then when I went to university, I had a guitar and I secretly played songs. And then when I was on the dole after university, I was in a big house and they'd heard me playing through my bedroom door and booked me onto this songwriter's night. I don't know why I didn't say no. I mean, that's sort of the sentence all the time of, I don't know why I carried on doing that. I don't know why I said no. I went and did that show and then I got booked for another. And then on the third, it was just like a, I think there was some sort of music event going on, but um, someone from The Enemy came up and saw my show. It was only three songs and wrote about me and The Enemy. And then London Records offered me like studio time and and it sort of snowballed and, and I was going to go with a label. There was lots of labels wanting to go with me and then I just thought, I'm going to do it myself even then. Sounds like I was confident, had no idea <laughs> why. So I, I set up my own record label and that was before even MySpace was going. So there was not a lot of people doing that. And I made a record and put that out and it got really praised and then I thought I'll do that again and then on that second album which was Little Black Numbers it was on my label but got nominated for a Mercury Prize and the BBC followed me around and it all kind of went stratospheric and and that's when um the imposter syndrome really kicked in and uh yeah and I found it difficult to leave the house and I just kept thinking that someone was gonna come up on stage and say you're not qualified to do this. Wow. <laughs> but by that time, I was on a major label. And um, so I did three albums. And then it's just, I've just kind of accidentally stumbled into the music world. <laughs> I mean, for me, Discovery of You would have been that album, Little Black Numbers, which was a, which was a, a magical LP. It was, it's a beautiful thing. I love, I still love listening to that now as I put it on lots. But I actually think it was, Miss, it was Paul Weller who introduced me to that album. I'm sure it, it was an art, because I'm sure it was like an interview in Q or something where he was talking about some of the stuff that he likes and it were, and that came up. Would that ring a bell for you? Is it the, the, him recommending you around that time? I think he's known my stuff for a while. It's really nice because like getting to know him a bit more over the 
last year, it's just become apparent how much of a fan of music he is and a champion he is for people who he, he likes and like young up and coming artists. And it's, um, it's quite rare, you know, a lot of people like to sort of just close in and sort of just talk about themselves and their projects. And he's like massively generous in, in that way. I mean, recently with the thing um, in, was it Mojo? Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to ask you about this. So Paul Weller edits Mojo magazine in June um, yeah, yeah. and put Heart Shaped Stone in his top 10 45s, currently stacked in his inner jukebox, I suppose. But a big yeah. Weller, Weller favourite, they say, yeah? Yeah, and I got... I got like a, I got a text from him at like two in the morning a little while ago, just saying that they'd been listening to a song of mine called Sequins that I wrote with Ed Harcourt on the big speakers and that it was just brilliant and he wanted to let me know that it was amazing song and hats off and I was like I was I woke up to the beep and then and then I was like punching my husband going I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm just. it was just so exciting so exciting like I was like see I deserve breakfast in bed now <laughs> what's he in your phone as the mod father Mr Weller have you got a nickname for him um, uh, Boozy Call Weller. No. <laughs> no, just Paul Weller. Just Paul Weller. That's Paul Weller. Yeah, yeah. And since that bit where, um, like you say, it goes stratospheric and um, becomes a bit scary, I would imagine. I can't imagine being in that position where suddenly you're kind of, like you say, you're performing and doing those three songs to suddenly, you know, everybody's talking about your album and you've got the, the press camp and all that. But there's this brilliant catalogue of loveliness of albums from you that kind of follows. And, and I'd love to talk to you about lyrics because, you know, old, old low light, overfly over, leave to remain the quickening. I mean, A, these kind of come around quite quickly and you're, you're kind of churning through material. But these are fabulous songs. But for, for me, it seems like, and, and it links in with Paul, I think, the, the time that you spend crafting words it seems to me that you you put a lot of effort into that they re they really come across these kind of honest lyrics that, that actually mean something it took a long time for me to realize that to admit like in a in a taxi or something when someone said what do you do and i'd say oh i'm a musician and i'm thinking i am really not a musician i mean i still 20 years in the business and i still can't bar chord and i'm i still think that i could i'm inventing new chords when someone comes and says that's a d6 diminished i'm like <laughs> oh i thought that was my chord um, but the lyrics thing has is always been a big joy for me and it's only over the last few years of writing for lots of other artists in like sweden norway france and america that them saying that i was good at it made me go oh but I thought everyone could do this. So I've been thinking about it because of last week as well, writing with Nashville writers who churn songs through and having a day with those little people and having the lovely feeling like you're running down a hill and it's quick and it's fun and it's easy. Because when I teach songwriting as well, it's not the same as like writing a book or writing poems. There has to be other elements with it. And it's kind of like a puzzle that you have to solve yourself and you only write the way you write. But there's some really fundamental and interesting things that happen with my head that I get this Bing moment. If I get, it doesn't have to be the perfect word, but it has to be the right shape. And if that shape fits in exactly with the way the melody is going up or down or the scan of a line and it feels effortless. I mean, the big thing is like you might be sort of putting 
tons of hours in, but you don't want someone to think, oh, that was a really hard lyric to write. You want it to feel like I never want to just be someone to think, oh, that's clever. And my interest is only in connection and in either putting a picture in someone's head or it making it fire off a memory for them or an emotion. So they're sort of the things that I'm playing with when I'm writing lyrics. And when you're co-writing, it's about a conversation. So like if we were co-writing now, we'd just start talking like we are and I'd, I'd want to know what you're thinking about now or if there's some sort of thing that you want to explore or a time in your life. And then I'd just like, I'd be... I'm old school. I have like books. So I just start writing, 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 and then wow. circling bits that work. And, and then from that, you start carving into the shape of the song. Once you've got the song in a kind of structure and you sing it through, then that's when you hone in again to work out if the right shapes or if the right words and, and just really craft it so that it's like, tight sorry i've just gone off on one <laughs> uh, oh man that, that was so lovely um chris difford talks about how a couple of songs he'd written particularly come come within like minutes so like the like call for cats i think in up the junction came in like you know, five minutes flat bang the whole thing done and yeah paul talks about this with that entertainment was just something he kind of just rattles through 10 minutes i'm not sure how true these things are but um are there songs like that with it which do come kind of really quickly and you just get it down and you go it's pretty much there yeah absolutely they're like the gifts you sort of get and it's almost like that um when you daydream and you're not quite sure what you're doing and you pick up a guitar and then this melody just falls and the sort of words come out and it's almost like a radio switches on in your head and they're brilliant because and they're usually the best which is kind of the most annoying thing about it <laughs> because they're, they're you know you don't even feel like you've tried and yeah there's no there's no effort gone into this whatsoever and bang there it is <laughs> yeah it. yeah and and then there's a song that you've worked on for four years and it like might might make a b-side yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah they are gifts those ones and you can get a mixture of the two as well you can get ones that like come sort of pretty much fully formed but they don't quite have the lyrical film that you want in inside um i know that from working with um, Paul with a song over the last couple of weeks, I know that what he likes to do a lot is uh, he likes to jam in the studio and just um, see where it sort of goes. And he works very sort of uh, in a sort of free form way where the structure reveals itself over playing round and round. And that's because mainly he's got friends. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, uh, whereas I just sit with my guitar and and all the chords that I've I've invented. Yes, your, and, your um, own chords. Yes, yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and sit in my studio and just um, just mess on. But that hasn't, um, that hasn't always been the case, though. So on this podcast, we've learned quite a lot about how sometimes you know those songs will be him working on demos and taking them into the studio, and then the band that he was with, whether it was um, yeah Bruce and Rick in the Jam, or the guys in the Style Council, or, or the Solo Years, and then pretty much being done and ready to go, and then them working on them. Whereas it does seem now but like in the past few albums the past few years is, is a bit looser and and will just just want to go into the studio spend more time at black barn and we'll talk about black because i know you, you've, you've been there and and just kind of play around like you say and then let's see where we get to which is obviously a, a different way of working entirely isn't it yeah i mean that's so great that he's got that space because he can make his own stuff there but i mean he also has 
studio speakers and a place of his own to like really immerse himself into other music and I know when I've been there he's got like loads of vinyl and stuff and they do a lot of listening in the studio as well and there's kind of nothing better than being in a recording studio listening on the proper speakers and you can hear every detail and the panning and the and you know the placement of like all the instruments on a song and you just get this it's almost like you know like widescreen it's like going to a cinema versus watching on the telly you know yeah 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 i need to take you back to 2004 to an album you did called relations which was lovely and there's there's something that you have in common with paul weller on that album and i don't know if you know what it is what is it it's birds so um so paul did the covers album the same year studio 150 was his covers album um you did relations which is brilliant there's some love i mean that your version of all apologies by nirvana alone is just you know worth the worth the price for that album um <laughs> but songs like tim hardin i i, I love um the leonard cohen um hallelujah but paul did a covers version and again he picked some pretty left field songs like you have i think in in parts um but you both did birds you both did birds neil young ah i didn't know that that's interesting prefer your version to say um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what was <laughs> what was it about that song well I've listened to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Neil Young for years and years. And um, I love the way Neil Young, he sort of uses broad brushstrokes for lyrics, but the way he places it with the melody, he just gets swept away. And I think that song, it's like lying on your back and watching clouds go over your head. And I really love that sort of feeling. And I wanted to sort of emulate that and see if I could get that similar feeling on on a re-record. I mean, with Relations, I'd had a really difficult tour and I'd been supporting someone who had previously supported me and then I'd gone on to support him. And he'd sort of gone stratospheric, but he was like not a very nice person obviously I won't name names <laughs> I'm not trying to guess from the list of people that I've got that you've worked yeah, with um, <laughs> um, <laughs> their sort of um, meanness and bullying on tour not just to me but to other people around that person it really got to me and I, and I had not a breakdown but I was like pretty shook up from it and and I thought I can't I don't want to do this don't want to be in the music business it's if it's full of people like that I'm not interested and so I just stopped and then friends were coming round and playing to play records and stuff and then we slowly started thinking oh well this is a really good way to fall in love with music again and to maybe get back in the business so it was like it was a more a sort of healing thing and oh yeah it was a healing thing <laughs> sorry that sounds so knobby but it was. And so we just started listening to loads of songs and then picking them apart. And it was like kind of being like a watchmaker or a clock fixer or something where we'd have the song and we'd go, right, what are these elements? Pull them all apart and then see if we could put it back together and do something different with it that showed the song in a new light. I think when people do covers often, you know, it's like Robbie Williams doing the American Songbook or something. They've got this lovely old horse that's like this beautiful song and they're just sat on it, whipping it, like, you know, and they want, you know, it's like they want to ride this beautiful beast but for their own ego and just not interested in that and I suppose the songs that I chose weren't particularly the songs that represented my musical catalogue or what I wanted to do or who I wanted to sort of praise it just didn't work that way in the same way as like if you look around your life and you see who is in your life and the friends that you've got you're like 
Well, this isn't particularly who I would have chosen. <laughs> but you know, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. But this is just what's happened. So, so there were certain songs that I tried a few Dylan songs. I tried a few uh, Joni Mitchell songs and like things like that. But strangely, the Nirvana was something that we could do something different with, or um, a Bee Gees song, or Ivor Cutler, and it just felt like it was more interesting that way. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, it's so interesting because I mean, Studio One Hundred and Fifty, like I say, was released the same year, which was Paul's covers album, and he talks exactly the same way. It was about like, you know, what can I do differently with the songs? How can I, you know, put them together? In a, in a, and to the point that he's covering like Sister Sledge, you know, Wishing on a Star. Whereas actually, if you thought Paul was going to do a, a covers album, you think it would be, you know, Small Faces and the Beatles. And that seems a similar thing. It's like, well, that's pointless. Why would he do that? You know, I was going to talk to you about live performance. And, and I had a list of the people you toured extensively with um, solo <laughs> and with bands, but I feel awkward reading them out now in case I've given anything away. But people, no, no, I'm going to do a post yeah, yeah. People like David Gray, Damien Rice, Ray LaMontagne, Beth Orton. I wanted to ask you a couple of things about live performance. So one was, and I hope you don't mind me digging into this, but we, we've talked a little about kind of mental health and anxiety as a performer on, on the podcast with others. And I read somewhere that you never used to have set lists at all, but then would also have like panic attacks occasionally and on stage. Was was it always an uphill struggle to, to perform live in that way? Early on, it was ridiculously difficult for me. Even now, looking back, I was thinking, wow, you know, with the first few albums, I used to sit down to perform on stage with the band. And I would sit down because I would black out with nerves. It was chronic. And I feel looking back now, like, why did I carry on? If it was that bad, why did I carry on? And I don't have an answer for that. But... um yeah, I mean, with the Mercury's being on stage, all of that sort of stuff, I said no to going on Jules Holland's because I didn't think I could do it. Uh, I said no to going on to Richard and Judy because I was a massive Bill Hicks fan at the time. And <laughs> and, then, and I was just determined to not suck Satan's cock at any point. <laughs> um, but now, you know, if there was a Richard and Judy and they asked me on, I'd I would get down on my knees. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was tough because I just, I was riddled with paranoia. I was a big dope smoker back in the day and the paranoia, you know, I didn't sort of put two and two together that maybe that wasn't helping <laughs> my <laughs> mental state. Um, and I wish I'd learned to write set lists I would go on stage and not know what was coming next and be panicked by it. And all I needed to do was write a set list. But it was just not knowing. I must have been an absolute nightmare for the band that I was with. Every time we were about to go on stage, I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I couldn't sing with anyone in the studio when we were recording. They'd like have to sort of only have the engineer in the studio. I mean, I just sound like a prima donna, but it was all so fundamentally terrifying for me and then I got pregnant with my my first son Louis and I remember I was on stage with Ray LeMontagne supporting him and it was like it was I think it was Shepherd's Bush Empire it was a big it was a big tour and I was quite pregnant and feeling quite motherly and the paranoia and nerves just sort of clicked off I think I was like oh right well there is more important things it's not all about me 
and you know I've got a baby in here um how is that gonna get out (laughs) (laughs) um you know bigger questions and bigger worries and then I suddenly just it just sort of flipped that I was like what if people aren't wishing the worst for me in the audience what if they're wishing the best and wanting me to do well and that and that sort of it was it was like a sort of snap revelation and that really helped my nerves and I still get ridiculously nervous I'm kind of good one-on-one chatting but I'm not an entertainer I'm a I'm a songwriter who performs what I've written I don't live for the applause I'm kind of I'd be quite happy just singing my songs to just you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be perfect. So let's make that let's make that a plan in future. And and back to Paul. When was it you first had a, an actual connection with him? Because um, I know about the People Powered gig, the concert for Corbyn gig was was twenty sixteen. But I'm guessing it was before that would be. Well, sort of. No, not really. I mean, there was people who knew him, who I knew, and vice versa. And but there wasn't really much direct contact. I mean, I live up in Newcastle and um, there's a big difference between being in music to make music and then being in music to to know everyone in music. Mm. And so I kind of just keep my head down and get on with work. I don't know tons of people. So yeah, the Corbin one was a big thing because he was playing with... um, Yeah, so Robert Wyatt and Danny Thompson, The Farm and Weller. Uh, This was people-powered Concert for Corbin, Brighton Dome, sixteenth uh, of December two thousand sixteen. Which, and you'd have thought, given like you know, given how his view on Red Wedge now, you would have thought this was the type of thing that he probably have avoided. Well, I think I'd done a I'd done a momentum gig previously in Liverpool. I think had Steve Pilgrim on it. There was other stuff like that, and that was for the NHS for fundraising for the NHS and also for Momentum. And then the Jeremy Corbyn one. I think it was like just to sort of show unity for him to sort of try and build up the momentum of of his campaign, I guess. Yeah. And I think Jeremy Corbyn had faults, and I didn't find him a particularly brilliant speaker but there's a difference between brilliant publicly and then being a good human and I know because my one of my best friends was Jeremy Hardy and him and Jeremy Corbyn were very close and I'd always known from Jeremy what what a good person Corbyn was and that he was always on the right side of history so I was happy to be there and part of it a lot of my friends thought I was an idiot for sort of getting involved politically for something but um I was happy to be there and I got to see Robert Wyatt I was like oh my gosh that's amazing (laughs) yeah so he he retired at that point hadn't he so he came out of retirement just for the gig and I didn't get to go to that one sadly but did did him and Paul get to play together it was it was amazing yeah they were on they were on stage together and Danny Thompson was there I've done a few shows which Danny was involved with in the past I mean I just sort of stood at the side of stage to watch it. it was what a joy and Paul was basically just sort of supporting Robert Wyatt you know massively he could feel just what a great guy he was there and I reached out and said I thought that was brilliant and then the woman who had organized those events she put me 
in touch with Stone Foundation because they were looking for someone to do a shared vocal. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm up for it. I've not really heard of them or anything. And so I travelled down from something I'd done in Scotland all the way down on the hottest day of the year down to Black Barn to sing that song. Yeah, so that was the first time I properly met Paul and everyone and was down there and I was so boiling it was ridiculous because I'd driven all the way and I'd like driven seven hours without having a wee and so the first thing I was thinking was one what do I say to everyone because I've not met them but the first thing I did say was hi Paul where's your toilet (laughs) (laughs) I was so desperate and then and then um that sort of broke the ice and then he made me a cup of tea and I thought well that's nice and then we got to it I've got a picture. Does it? The only picture I have of me and Paul Weller is from that day when he was there, and it was so hot. So he's got no top on, and he's got his arm around me, and then the the photo sort of cut off waist height, and I've got like a shirt on. I showed my husband, and he was like, "Well, it looks like he's got no top on, and you've got no trousers." On. <laughs> So, so that's not going onto any social because it does look just ridiculously like awful. But so that's just for me. You make it sound like the John Lennon and Yoko Ono wedding album. That album, you know, the cover where they're completely naked. Well, maybe I should have taken my top off just to be polite. <laughs> so, come on. What was it like to record a Black Barn then? So, this was Stone Foundation for their album Everybody, Anyone. The track you did together was lovely. It's called Don't Walk Away. So what was it like working with? Did you know the guys before that point? No, no, I hadn't known them, but they're just all really nice. I mean, what you find with um, with people in music is that the most talented ones don't feel a need to prove themselves or be anything but who they are. So once you find those sort of people, then you're fine. You just, yeah, really nice lads got on. The studio was great. It was just like a sort of vintage gear heaven, you know, like with these standing lamps and, and, and rugs and yeah, it just felt really comfy. And I did the take in a couple of hours and, and then just got back in my hot car and left. (laughs) (laughs) And this was 2018, so around this time, Paul's releasing albums like, you know, the Jawbone soundtrack and True Meanings. And I know you're a big fan of both those LPs, and particularly the songs, um, The Ballad of Jimmy McCabe from Jawbone, which is lovely. And, and you love Gravity as well, don't you? I am massive fans of both of those songs and, and, and um, aspects as well. There's just something that's just like the sort of stuff that I completely love. I know it's not going to be like his greatest hit, like the the biggest hits that he has but i just the the scope that he shows with that album true meanings it's it's like proper proper classic songwriting and and the orchestration in that as well you know um hannah peel he worked with hannah peel didn't he and she's an absolute genius and that collaboration between the orchestration and those delicate beautiful intricate songs yeah i just absolutely love that album massive fan i could hear a version of aspects from you 
for your next covers album, I have to say. I think that would be Oh, let me write that down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Little idea there. Going back to Stone Foundation, you also performed that song live with them, Islington Assembly Hall, where and Weller was on stage for that gig at the same time as well. So did you see him backstage? Was there any conversations that night? Can you remember? Yeah, yeah, we did see him backstage. Well, I was there with my husband and kids and... Um, they couldn't stay for the whole show. They were in a hotel opposite because it was getting late. But Paul was just really, really nice to them. And um, they were playing with a ball, you know, throwing it up against the wall. And he chatted to them and threw the ball. And he was just just really nice with them and lovely with me. He's just a decent guy. And um, anyway, so they went back to the hotel. And then my husband texted me and was saying... Louis going crazy because he says that the man that played ball with him is on the telly. <laughs> and so I think there was some sort of big show on that night on telly, the same night as the Stone Foundation gig. And my son was like, but, but he was, he was there and now he's in this. So it was like, yeah. Oh, funny. I love it. <laughs> There's a few more things I want to dig into uh, before we go, and I'm aware of time, so I'm going to get through them quickly. I have to talk to you about David Rotheray, and I, I love this guy, and I don't know where he is now, but Homespun was a really big band for me uh, back in the day with uh, with him and Sam Brown. But there was this wonderful LP that I, I encouraged people to dig into, which was called The Life of Birds. And I thought I felt like this was just a couple of years ago, and I looked at it, it's like 2010, which just makes <laughs> me realise how quickly time flies. But you sang on a song, Crows, Ravens and Rooks, and you did the cover artwork for that album as well. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a terrific album. I know you're only on one track on it, but that's really lovely. What was it like working with him? It's great. Yeah, I think he had lyrics and I wrote the music for that. And then the cover, yeah, I just threw him some art because that's what I'm meant to be doing. That's that's what I'm qualified for as an artist. <laughs> so <laughs> I throw that stuff to people and hope that gets to places. But um, yeah, so I did that album and then he did another album, which was sort of reinventing songs Oh, yeah, um, from, from the other viewpoint, wasn't it? Or the reply the other, to somebody. That's right. I yeah, so that. I yeah. did I did a, a sort of reply to Roxanne for that album. But yeah, he's great and he, he's good for collaborating. God, I haven't spoken to him in absolutely years. But um, yeah, it's good, that album. Yeah, it's good. No, I like that. And I loved Homespun with um, Sam Brown's coming on the show and I'm, I'm a big fan of hers as well. But um, the other thing I was going to ask you about was the, the recent stuff, so bring it bang up to date, where uh, March 2021... You publish your debut novel, The Ormering Tide. You're now a published author. So tell me about this. Ormers are like um, sh- like a sort of abalone shellfish. Um, oh, and there's only se- uh, an ormering tide is when the sea goes out really far and really low and it sort of glimmers and shimmers and, and it sort of reveals things that were hidden before. And that's the one time that you can go out and, and, and fish for ormus. The narrator is a, a girl called Roselle who lives on an island with her family. And the, at the start of the book, the eldest brother goes missing. And so it's trying to sort of find out the mysteries of that. But it's sort of written from her viewpoint. So it's how she sees the world and how she sees nature. And yes, it's kind of a bit poetic-y. Pros. Before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about the songwriting retreats that you have run and work with others. And Chris Difford, I know, um, works with you on that in times as well. How is your approach to writing a novel different from how you would teach or how you would write songs yourself? It's really, really, really hard. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had the idea for this book about six years ago. 
and it took on many forms and got loads of editing. And the difference, you know, I can sometimes on a co-write day, I can write four songs in a day. And just the sheer volume of a book, like you have to come to it like a job, you know, you have to come to it and write. And I ended up editing about 40,000 words oh, of stuff God. that didn't end up in the book. And yeah, so it's like people who write more than one book, I just, I just think... You, they're mental. <laughs> <laughs> they have too, um, too much time on their hands, clearly. <laughs> well, they do. Well, it does. It, like, it completely takes... So, because I had my songwriting and I'm a mum, I knew that I wanted to write this book and I didn't want to be one of those people who was, like, for 10 years saying, oh, yeah, I'm writing a book. And I have never... I, I didn't know how to write a book, so I sort of learnt on the job of writing and learning as I went. And so what I'd do is I'd take the kids to school and then I'd get back into bed and type all day. And then at like quarter past two, the alarm would go off. And then I'd race around the house and hoover, tidy, clean, and look like I'd been doing that all day. <laughs> so I just did that for like a couple of years without getting found out and secretly writing a book. And then strangely, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's out into the world as well, which must be lovely as you're seeing your, your products out there as, a, as an actual physical thing as well. Because with music now, everything's MP3, isn't it? It's all Spotify streaming and all that. But to have a physical product in your hand that you can flick through is, is brilliant. I know. I know. It even, it even smells yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is beautiful. And I miss that with, um, with the physical thing. I mean, I've got um, an album coming out this Christmas with the Poet Laureate, Caroline Duff. And we're going to make that into a little sort of book with a CD. So it is a physical thing. But I mean, even in the studio when you're recording, I always like to stick whatever we've done in the computer onto half inch or something. So that it actually enters as a physical thing in the real world. I miss that. It's funny, since I started the podcast, I've, and a bit, bit like your secret book thing, I've started buying vinyl again. So I initially I had the vinyl, then I moved over to CD because we were all told that CD was better quality and it's indestructible, it lasts forever. And then, um, you know, MP3 was the future. So I converted all my CDs. I got rid of pretty much all my CDs because that was going to be, it's all going to live in the cloud. It'll all be fine. And then I realized that's complete bollocks and it's the sound quality isn't anywhere near as good. And we were all conned, quite frankly. So now since this, I've started getting vinyl, but my missus doesn't know. There's a, rec <laughs> there's a record player arriving tomorrow. She's going to go, why have we got a record player? Uh, by the <laughs> but, um, but having the physical thing of vinyl and being able to read through the lyrics and look at the artwork and all that, I think it's, it's so lovely, isn't it? I've completely forgotten what that was like. Yeah, sorry, I just, you said something and I had to write it down. Um, uh, and if it ends up in a song, I'll let you know. Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, my husband's the same. He's he's sort of enlisted in this, there's a company who just sends you a vinyl every two weeks or once a month or something, oh, right. and you don't know what it's going to be. And so we've been doing that, and that's really exciting, and we've like discovered some great stuff like um, Big Thief and um, Jane Weaver. We got into oh, her yeah. through yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's another Weller recommendation. She did a remix on on Sunset as well. It's, I love that world of discoveries. It's so exciting, isn't it? So yeah, so getting back into the physical product. So Christmas album coming out. I know that people after listening to this podcast will Google you and your greatest hits will come up, which isn't your greatest hit. So there might be a little bit of confusion around there as well. But that's your most recent album, uh, studio album, wasn't it? Which was talking of novels, actually, a collaboration with a novelist. So it was a really interesting, I mean, it's a beautiful album, again, obviously, from you. But um, that was a really interesting project. Yeah, I mean... 
the record label still haven't forgiven me for making an album called Greatest Hits that's not my greatest hits. But that was the title of Laura Barnett's book. And it was a, a fictional character who's looking back on her life as a songwriter. And each chapter starts with a song. So we co-wrote those songs together for the book. And then I made a fictional Greatest Hits album that went alongside the record, uh, the book. And so as you, as you go through the book, the songs have sort of meanings. And then when you go back to the CD, you know that it's autobiographically from this character. So it was really chewy, really interesting thing to do. And I loved it but if people like I think a lot of the songs that Paul Weller has liked of mine of recently has been from the album Crown Electric which has got Heart Shaped Stone and Sequins and um, Picture Book and then the album that I did with Ed Harcourt which was um, Hypoxia based on Sylvia Plath's the bell jar so that's another book thing <laughs> but yeah i've got i've got a new album coming out that i've sent a few tracks to paul over text over booty call weller <laughs> um, which is an album i've done with ed harcourt which is like coming out in march and that's m massive it's like uh, really epic with like strings and big guitars and quite different to stuff i've done before Oh, that yeah, sounds brilliant! Yeah, I love yeah. Ed's stuff as well. He's great. I love that. So, so you were down at Black Barn recently. Are you were able to? Is that linked in with that, or is that a different project entirely? Are you allowed, allowed to tell us anything about that? Um, no. So we're I'm writing a song with Paul, and um, hopefully we're going to be like singing that together. But um, you know, whether or not it makes the cut of a record, who knows? But it's good fun. What's that process? Is it you taking lyrics in and working with him on them or just jamming in the studio like you mentioned earlier? Well, I can tell you how embarrassing, I can tell you my embarrassing story, um, <laughs> you know, because who's going to listen to this? I mean, yeah, exactly. it's just doing exactly. me on a phone call, isn't it? <laughs> so the first thing, oh God. <laughs> so the, I'm really looking forward to this now. <laughs> so the first thing that happened was, Paul was saying, oh, we should write a song together. And I was like, I'd love to. And inside, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And so he gave me a title and said, oh, I think we should write something on this idea. And I was like, all right, I'm going to think of this title. So that week, I went down an absolute rabbit hole from the title, like going in National Geographic. Like I must have read and written there was 20 pages of idea lyrics and I was like I've got some ideas you know casual next thing I did was like put a melody to that and then the next thing I did was uh come in my studio put the track down do backing vocals put like Mellotron double bass like basically I made a whole song <laughs> in a week because I was overexcited. With no involvement then, from him whatsoever at this point, apart from exactly, the title. <laughs> exactly. And then sent him it and he said, well, this is really great, but I haven't done anything. <laughs> and I just was so overexcited that, um, you know, Paul Weller asks you to write a song with him. And basically, I didn't write a song with him. I wrote a song at him. So I did that. And then I was like, I'm really sorry. I've written a song at you. Um, can we please start again? <laughs> so I think he found that amusing. <laughs> Just because I wanted to show, to show him that, like, I was a hard worker and that, like, I could get on with something. But I just, even now, my butt is clenching with the embarrassment of it. <laughs> 
So we've started again where he's been jamming this track and um, and then he's been sending me different versions of the jams of this track and then I've been writing sort of lyrics and ideas and we've just been going back and forward and slowly building it that way. Nice. So, which is, you know, the way it should be done. <laughs> That's, that's collaboration right there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is this over mobile phone? How do you send each other files and things? Email, phone, right. stuff like that. Oh, this is so great. Love it. I love it. Um, and a little hint into maybe what's coming next from him in a way, because I've heard he's collaborating with a few different people. So I don't know whether this is a project or whether it's just actually lots of single things. I read the other day that he's never going to do another album. So who knows what's going on in the well? Of yeah, I, I read I read that just after the text he sent me of <laughs> a song together. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> Jazz Cafe next year. There's a lovely Weller Connection reunion, Monks Road Social. I don't even know if you know this is still a thing because it's, I think it's been moved around a couple of times because of COVID. But um, there's a gig where a jazz cafe, Dr. Robert, Mick Talbot, Neil Jones Stone Foundation, Matt Dayton, Steve White, Jack O'Peak, and yourself and others. This is going to be such a great gig. I'm really looking forward to this. I got tickets, but tickets are still on sale for this. This is nuts. Well, the fact that you called me half an hour before this podcast to let me know it was happening and I didn't know, <laughs> if you could do the same for me <laughs> this gig when it happens, that would be really useful. Yeah, I really loved being part of the Monks Road social. Dr. Robert, he was great. Everyone who was part of that just had this, just a vibe of of fun you know and it's like going into the studio to see what happens trying each other's different things out i know matt dayton from doing retreats with chris difford and actually on the new album in march there's a song that we wrote together me and matt so it was lovely to hang out with him and in the downtime of that day in the studio, me and Matt wrote another song. It's just nice because you feel like there's a community of people. And I think it's more and more about that sort of connections and, and having a family around you and making sure everyone's okay. I mean, I have that from the retreats that I put on like a few years back, you know, people like Magic Numbers and Steve Naive and yeah, just like lots and lots of people come into those retreats that I hosted the way Chris does. And those relationships are still going on. And it's like, oh, do you know someone who can play bass? Or is there any good venues you could recommend? And it just it just becomes like looking after each other. Because mm. it's tough. It's tough in the music world at the moment. You know, there isn't money around. There's a lot of people who are working musicians who you know just haven't had the work i've got a friend who's an amazing drummer and you know he had to give up his flat in london and move on to someone's sofa in ramsgate just you know there isn't there isn't the money around for keeping people going and not a huge amount of support coming either which is the, the frightening thing from from government and things like that um, so i'm really looking forward to that gig i have to say it feels like a bit of a who's who of people who have come on the podcast as well which is gonna be nice <laughs> so i'm hoping i can get to chat to some of you as well when we're there but i have two final questions for you Catherine. Before you go, uh, this has been so lovely. I thank you for your time. You are allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. Which one are you going to go with? <laughs> ah, um, <laughs> uh, I think it'd have to be... 
Wildwood or Gravity, I think. Okay. It's just or aspect. Oh God, it's too now. That's that's a, that's that's a mean question. <laughs> Tell me what it is about Wildwood because we've touched on the other two. What what's special about that song for you? I'm not a folky. I mean, like I don't do old fashioned folk songs, but everyone in the pop world calls me folk, and everyone in the folk world calls me pop. But I'm always interested in the idea of the Wildwood or a Greenwood of a place where things happen, and I think he was maybe touching on that. And I just like the jamminess of it. The the you can tell that it's been sort of people in a room playing together, and it has that groove that takes you through, just like walking through a wood. So nice, I nice. And one that he's still doing now. He did it at the Barbican gig the other week. Final question for you then: the purpose of this podcast is not only to meet lovely people like yourself, but also to get that meeting and that interview with Paul Weller that I never managed in my radio career. If it happens. What should I talk to him about? Is there a question you think I should ask him or, or a topic you think he'd appreciate? Oh, I didn't realise that this was the sort of manifesto. <laughs> That's the I end goal, yeah. It's called Desperately I... Seeking Paul, this podcast. Ah, because I did a gig uh, a few years back. Um, it wasn't in Spain, but it was in an island near Spain and, and it was called Waiting for Waits. And he'd done it like for years and years and he got people to come and do a Tom Waits cover. But like the whole... Hope and point of it was that Brilliant. he was waiting for Tom Waits to come over. So it's a similar, <laughs> it's a similar it. thing. It. Oh, imagine um, this as a live concert every week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you asked him? <laughs> well, no, not really. No. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing talking to me? All you have to do is just give him a call and say, do you fancy a chat? <laughs> oh, my God. I mean... That's what I would do. <laughs> You're right. It's a, lo- it's a lot of effort to get to that end goal, isn't it? It's hours of worth of conversation. I need some bread. Shall I go to Asda or shall I start growing wheat? <laughs> <laughs> and talking to everybody who's ever grown wheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or likes wheat. He's a yeah. fan of wheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Catherine, I've loved every second of this. Yeah, it's been an absolute blast. I can't wait for the new album. So March 2022, we're saying? Yeah. yeah, so the Christmas album with Carol Ann, which is sort of guilty pleasure of like 70s Christmas Top of the Pops hits. And then my sort of dark, big Ed Harcourt record in March. Wow, I can't wait. I cannot wait, I have to say. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Catherine. Have a lovely day and cheers oh. for the time. All right, my love. See ya. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to the magnificent Catherine Williams. Some brilliant and hilarious stories in that episode. Thank you so much for sharing, Kath. I really do appreciate it. Fantastic. And I encourage you to dive into her music immediately. Wow, wow, wow. What a back catalogue. Check out my show notes for links too. Now, next up on the podcast, we hear from a fan who is so crazy about the live Paul Weller experience that has created a new initiative called Love Weller Live. We'll chat with Steve Wheatley on the next episode of the podcast. Now, don't forget, you can subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. Do make sure you leave a review and share on social media. You can also buy me a coffee if you fancy and find out information about all my guests in the show notes for the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.